Right. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And we'll read verses 20 to 22 this morning. Hebrews 7, verses 20 to 22. There it says, And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for indeed they became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also, Jesus has come, become the guarantee of a better covenant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking that you might, Lord, teach us and help us to understand, Lord, even greater, Lord, the depths of the love that you have for us, Lord, that you have poured out upon us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we see in him that everything needed for our salvation, Lord, for us to be redeemed from our sins and to be reconciled to you, Lord, that he has fulfilled and paid all of our debts, and that there is a surety and there is a certainty in the relationship we have with you, because you are relating to us through your son, Jesus Christ, and we know that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, Father, we thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves by sending your Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for our sin, you condemned it in his flesh. Lord, teach us today, and Lord, draw us ever closer into conformity to the perfect image of your Son, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we remember that in Hebrews 7, uh, the apostle is laying out for us the superior of the priesthood of Jesus Christ and of the new covenant, especially uh, when it is contrasted to the Levitical priesthood that served at the altar under the old covenant. This is the main point of Hebrews chapter 7, proving that the Old Testament anticipated the rise of a greater high priest than those that were established under the old covenant. One who would become a high priest, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but on the basis of an indestructible life. One who would be not of the order of Aaron, but one who would arise after the order of Melchizedek. And he is bringing to bear these many truths that were deposited in the Old Testament, especially concerning the relationship and interaction of Melchizedek and Abraham and what that means concerning the priesthood of Jesus Christ. We have seen that the Old Covenant and that priesthood was described as weak and useless because it was not able to perfect the people, that the law made nothing perfect. It could neither establish the people in righteousness, nor could it atone for the sins that they had committed. There was always the need for something greater to come, both before the law was instituted and after it was given at Sinai. If sinners are going to be reconciled to God from Genesis chapter 3 onward, then we need a great high priest over the household of God who can actually make us perfect, who can actually atone for our sins. And none of these things could be accomplished under the law by the priest who served from the family of Aaron. Only Jesus Christ can make us fit to draw near to God. And this is why there is the necessity of the setting aside of the former commandment. 
because of its weakness, because of its uselessness, because it made nothing perfect. And there is, at the same time, the bringing in of a better hope. The bringing in of a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. One who can perfect his people. One who can give us a right and a privilege to draw near to God. This is what we've been dealing with up to this point in Hebrews chapter 7. Now today, he will provide additional proof for the glory of Christ, for his superiority over the Levitical priesthood, showing again that it is without any refutation that his priesthood is superior and more glorious than Aaron's. And when his priesthood comes, this one must of necessity, it must cease and it must set aside. And not only must this happen, but it is to our advantage that this happens. Why it is good for us that the old covenant is fading away, that it has faded away, and for us to bask solely in the glory of Christ and the glory of the new covenant. So let's look beginning in Hebrews 7 verse 20. Here, speaking of the better hope by which we draw near to God, speaking of the priesthood of Christ, he says in Hebrews 7 20, and inasmuch as it was not without an oath, Here, again, we have another declaration of the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. His priesthood was established with an oath from God. God did not accompany the establishment of Aaron's priesthood with an oath. He did do this with Jesus' priesthood. Therefore, his priesthood must be superior. And if his priesthood is superior, then the covenant that he administered is also superior. Everything about Jesus Christ and his priesthood must be greater than everything associated with Aaron and with his priesthood. The better hope that is the priesthood of Christ is in every way superior to the former commandment that was associated with the Levitical priesthood. Here we see that one may be a priest legitimately, either with an oath or without an oath. The priest who served under the former commandment They did not seize the priesthood in an illegitimate way. Aaron became a high priest over Israel. His family became a high priest over Israel through the years. And this was not something that Aaron took for himself. It was not something that he claimed illegitimately. He was made a priest in a legitimate way by God. However, when he was made a priest, he was not made a priest with an oath. One can become a priest by the call of God without an oath. Aaron was called by God to this task. Hebrews 5, 4 and 5, there it says, Hebrews 5, 4, No one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become high priest, but he who said to him... There, Aaron did not take the honor for himself. He was called by God to this position. Yet, when God issued that call to Aaron, he did not accompany that call with an oath. God did not swear to Aaron to establish him and his family as high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Aaron was made priest by the call of God, but not with the oath of God. However, in contrast, Jesus was made a priest by both the call of God and also with the oath of God. God attached the oath to the call to Jesus as a priest. 
And in this, God is signifying his greatness, his superiority, that this is a far greater priesthood than the one that was established under the law of Moses. How can a priesthood established without an oath have as much glory as a priesthood established with an oath? Right, the oath of God confirms the superiority of the one over the other, over, over the other. That a greater priest for a greater, for a better covenant. And again, this is for our benefit. This oath of God was given, though it is given to honor Jesus Christ. Jesus did not need the oath of God to confirm to him his confidence in his priesthood. The oath of God is given for whose benefit? It's always given for our benefit, for our assurance. The faith, the hope, the comfort, the honor, the glory of the church, all of this always is connected and rests and resides solely upon the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And this is why the apostle is taking such great pains to prove to us the greatness of his priesthood. For when our confidence in the superiority of his priesthood increases, when we see the glory of Jesus Christ as our mediator, then our faith increases, our comfort increases, our assurance increases, our hope in this present world increases. The oath of God has a twofold purpose. First, to bestow glory and honor upon Jesus Christ. When Jesus takes up the office that was occupied by men before, It was necessary for God to make a distinction between Jesus and between those who served under the old covenant. He must have supremacy in all things. God saw fit to heap additional glories upon his son, Jesus Christ, that he did not give to Aaron. And how could he give these things to Aaron when Jesus is superior to him in every way? And this is because in the church, among the people of God, He must be supreme. He must have supremacy over all things. He must have supremacy over Moses. He must have it over Aaron. And one of the ways that God established the supremacy of Christ over them is by attaching to his priesthood an oath from God above. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Show us here that he must have supremacy over all things. There can be no rival to Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. He himself must have first place in everything. He must be supreme. He must be the chief among all of us in the church. He must have this supremacy given to him and to him alone. And one of the ways that God identified this, made this distinction between Christ and others, is by giving his priesthood this confirmation with his oath. 
So the first reason for the oath is to extol the glory of Christ. The second reason is for our own benefit, for our assurance, for our faith, for our comfort in this present world, because we are drawing near to God through Christ. And when we're drawing near to God through Christ, we need assurances because of the weakness and the frailty of our flesh that if we draw near to God through Christ, we might actually receive that we will indeed receive favor and mercy and grace from God through him. Because in our natural state, we cannot draw near to God lest we be consumed by the fury of his wrath that will consume his adversaries. We need assurances that if we draw near to God through Christ, that God will receive us kindly, that God will take us into his own possession. And this he confirms to us through this oath, the oath of God given for our own assurance and for our own confidence that Jesus as our high priest is able to reconcile us to God and he is able to grant to us this right and privilege to draw near to God. And it is in that way for our benefit, for our help in this present world. John 11, John 11, 41 and 42, here we see an example of this, that there were times in the life of Christ, when there were things that were said and things that happened, and it was not for the benefit of Jesus, but it was for the benefit of those who were hearing his word for his disciples. John eleven forty one. 41. Actually, 40, uh, yes, 41 and 42. It says, so they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. Did Jesus ever have any doubt that God the Father would hear him and God would answer his prayers? He never doubted that, not one time. But here he is saying this out loud, not for his own benefit, not as an expression of some weak faith that now has been strengthened. His faith was always strong in these things. He's saying it for the benefit of everyone else so that they would know that God always hears Christ. Then also John 12, verse 27. 27 to 30. 27 to 30. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Jesus knows that God hears him. He knows that God will glorify his name in him. He has no doubt of this. And this voice from heaven is not because there's some weakness in Jesus that the Father needs to overcome, but it's for the benefit and for the sake of those who are there, for their faith that it might be built up and have confidence in Jesus Christ. The oath of God is given for these two purposes, to bring glory and honor to Christ that he might have supremacy, and then for our benefit so that our faith would rest solely upon him and that our faith might be strengthened in him. Hebrews 7 verse 21 says, For they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Here is the proof provided for the previous declaration. Right? He declared that the priesthood of Jesus was confirmed by an oath. 
Now, in contrast to this, he says, they became priests without an oath. They being the, they, the priests who served under the old covenant that were established by the law of Moses, the Levitical priesthood established in the family of Aaron. God gave that to Aaron. He did call him to that. There were things that he did to bestow glory and honor on Aaron in contrast to the rest of the people of Israel, but he never gave to Aaron this oath. He did not swear to him to make him a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Exodus chapter 28, 28, 1 to 5, and 29, 1 to 9, we have here the calling of Aaron in the establishment of the priesthood under the old covenant. 28, 1 to 5. says, Then bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him, for among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as priest to me. These are the garments which they are to make, a breastpiece and an ephod, and a robe and a tunic of checkered work, a turban and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that he may minister as priest to me. They shall take gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen. Then chapter 29, verse 1. Now, this is what you should do to them to consecrate them to minister as priests to me. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil, and you shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and present them in the basket along with the bull and the two rams. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall take the garments and put on Aaron the tunic and the robe and the ephod and the ephod and the breastplate and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. You shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. And you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them and you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and bind caps on them and they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statue. So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons." Here, three things accompanied the Levitical priesthood in the establishment of it. First, there was the call of God. God is the one who set this apart and gave this to Aaron. This is what we read earlier from Hebrews chapter 5. No one takes this honor on himself, but only receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Aaron did not seek this out. He did not, they did not have an election and vote, and he was the one chosen from among the people. None of that happened. But rather, God called him, and God bestowed it upon him and upon his children. Secondly, there was garments that accompanied this call for beauty. This was necessary because Aaron is a mere man. There's nothing in his essence, in his nature or being, that distinguishes him from any other man or from any other Israelite. Aaron is every bit as much an Israelite, a son of Abraham, as the rest of the people. And Aaron is every bit as much a sinner before God as everyone else. Aaron in himself has no beauty. There is nothing to distinguish him and to honor him. And this is why God had to bestow these garments on him for beauty and honor, a way of 
decorating him or symbolizing the honor and glory of the priesthood of Christ because there is no honor and glory in Aaron because he is dead in his trespasses and sins. So God gave these garments to this office and the man who occupied that office in order to bestow beauty, glory, and honor upon him. And then thirdly, there was sacrifice for consecration. This was the blood of animals used to sanctify Aaron and his son to serve as high priest. Now, it's important that in this we see that all of the things that accompanied the calling of Aaron and his filling of this role as high priest in order to confirm it, both the garments for beauty and the sacrifice for consecration, all of these things have to do with outward, with ceremonies, with physical, with carnal realities. These are shadows and types, but there is no substance in these things. And these things cannot actually accomplish our redemption. These are, like it says in Hebrews 9.10, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. These are the kinds of things that were there in the old covenant. But this was not the case with Jesus Christ. When Jesus became a priest, Notice in Hebrews 7.21, he was made priest with oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. He was made and confirmed to his priesthood in a greater and a more superior way. There was no need to decorate Jesus with outward garments for glory and beauty because he possesses glory and beauty in what? in his very being, in his essence, in his nature, as the eternal son of God, as the express image of God, as a perfect and a sinless man, he is ordained with glory and beauty and honor. And there is no need to cover his sinfulness to commemorate this office in these outward and these ceremonial ways. Jesus has glory and beauty in this way. Nor is there the need to consecrate him with the blood of bulls and goats. Because he will be consecrated by what kind of blood? His own precious blood. And so his priesthood is established on these greater ways, in this greater way. And it is confirmed by this oath from God. Notice the one who swears the oath. It is God the Father swearing, making this oath to God the Son. This is from Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord, my God, is saying to my Lord and God, God the Father declaring to God the Son that he will make him, uh, that he will cause him to sit at his right hand until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And then it is in verse 4 of Psalm 110 that the Lord swears and will not change his mind, declaring him to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This oath of God is a declaration, right? A solemn, unchangeable, unalterable declaration of the purpose of the will of God. It is a declaration of the immutable will of God. For God to swear concerning the priesthood of Jesus is God's way of confirming it to us that this priesthood is eternal. It is unalterable, right? It is not subject to change and it will never be set aside. This is the difference between the priesthood or one of the differences between the priesthood of Aaron and the priesthood of Christ. Aaron's priesthood was temporary. It was always temporary. There was a day when it was going to be set aside. 
It was perpetual, but only as long as the old covenant was standing. But once that old covenant came to an end, then what happens to that priesthood? It comes to an end. It is set aside. This is as we saw in 18 and 19. There is the setting aside of the former commandment. There is the setting aside of the priesthood of Aaron. But will Jesus' priesthood ever be set aside? And will another priesthood ever be established in its place? It's never going to happen. And God has made this abundantly clear to us by swearing and saying, I will never change my mind. There's no doubt for us in the perpetual priesthood of Jesus Christ. You are a priest forever, God says to his son. And he says it to him for our benefit, for our establishment. It is the same as Psalm 2, 7. In Psalm 2, verse 7, God tells of the decree. He tells of the decree to his son. What God has decreed in eternity past, he makes known by swearing these oaths, by making it and publishing it in the world and in his word. And in Psalm 2.7, he says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the decree of God is to make his son, Jesus Christ, to grant to him supremacy over all things. And God confirms this to us by swearing to him, by swearing to his son, which is the second part. Notice then, not only the one who swears, which is God the Father, the one that he swears to is God the Son. It is the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God swore to him God will never change his mind concerning him. There will never be a replacement. There will never be a substitute. There will never be a disannulling. There will never be an alteration. There will never be a change or removal to the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He never takes a day off. He never gets sick and is unable to perform his duties. He never is going to die so as not to always live to make intercession for us. Everything that he needs, an indestructible life, In order to be our eternal high priest, he possesses all of these qualities and all of these attributes. So he always lives to serve and to minister and to intercede on our behalf. And God has proven this to us through this oath, revealing his will concerning the matter. Jesus Christ is priest forever. Again, Aaron's priesthood was always temporary. Even before it was established, God already... In this interaction between Melchizedek and Abraham, God had already laid the foundation for the abolishment of Aaron's priesthood. Our great advantage over those under the old covenant is centered upon the unchangeable priesthood of Jesus Christ. We always have boldness and confidence to draw near to God because we have a high priest forever. We need not fear that his priesthood will be abolished that it will cease to operate and work in our benefit, that we would come to draw near to God and find that we have no mediator to grant us access to God. God has established him as our priest forever, and he will never alter or change his will or his mind regarding Christ. And since all of our hope rests upon him, then we have full assurance, full assurance of hope through Christ. The oath for our benefit for our assurance and our confidence that we have access to God. When men are struck with the bounty of God's goodness, when consider 
that God promises to us things which eye has not seen, which ear has not heard, which has not entered into the heart of man. All the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Right? When we see these promises of God in the Bible, there are times because of our weakness that we think that this is impossible. It's too good to be true. How could something like this ever be? How could it come to pass? When Joseph's brothers came back to Jacob and told their father Jacob that Joseph was alive and that Joseph was the ruler of Egypt, it says that he was stunned and he did not believe them. But then when he saw all of the wagons and all of the goods that were brought from Egypt and when they confirmed to him again the words of Joseph, it said that his spirit was revived. Then he believed them and he wanted to go see his son. When the women returned from the tomb and told the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead, it says that the words appeared to them to be an idle tale and they would not believe them. How could this be? How could something so miraculous, so glorious, so wonderful, how could this be? It seemed as an idle tale to them. The glories of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, that we would have peace with God, that we would have eternal life, that we would be heirs of Christ, with Christ, that we would have the right to be called children of God, that we would receive the Holy Spirit. These are great, marvelous, wonderful blessings of God. Rightly, we should be stunned that rebels against God would gain such blessings. But are these things an idle tale? Are these things nonsense? Are these things that are unbelievable for us? No, of course not. We know for certain that God will indeed bestow such blessings upon us, and God has confirmed it to us with his oath, with his oath. Hebrews 6, 13 to 14. Here we remember when God made the promise to Abraham, he confirmed that promise with an oath. Hebrews 6, 13 to 14. It says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is the end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. God wanted to display even more to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. He interposed it with an oath. And this is what he's doing for us in the priesthood of Christ. He wants, he desires to confirm to the heirs, to confirm to us the unchangeableness of his purpose to make Jesus Christ high priest over the household of faith. And the way that God confirms this to us is by interposing it with an oath. God has reserved his oath for the priesthood of Jesus Christ alone. He withheld that oath from Aaron's priesthood and he gave it to Jesus Christ to confirm to us that Jesus is indeed our high priest. 
and that all the blessings of salvation come to us only through him. Aaron did receive glory from God. He was made a priest by God, but God reserved greater glory for Jesus Christ. He was made a priest with an oath. Hebrews 7.22. What is the application or the inference from these things? So much the more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. This is the conclusion or the inference of what he has said. This is the application of Jesus being confirmed as high priest by an oath. He has become the guarantee or the surety of a better covenant. Now, this is the topic he will take up in chapter 8. Chapter 7 is devoted to an examination of the office of high priest, a comparison and a contrasting between Aaron priesthood and Jesus' priesthood. Chapter 8 is devoted to a comparison and contrasting of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Here he introduces this topic here, that Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. There is a change of priesthood, there is a change of law as we've seen, and there is an entirely new covenant by which we relate and by which we worship God in Jesus is the surety. He is the guarantee, not of the old covenant, not of the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. He is the guarantee of a better covenant of the new covenant by which we find ourselves. Now, a few things that are assumed in this statement. If there is a better covenant, then the first thing is that there must have been another covenant. And this other covenant that he is contrasting it with is the old covenant. The old covenant or the covenant that God made with Sinai. The covenant that Jesus is a guarantee of is better than that covenant. Secondly, that covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai, was a good covenant. Right? Better is a degree of comparison. It is not a contrary He's not making a distinction between an evil covenant and a good covenant. He's making a distinction between a good covenant and a better covenant. And that was indeed a good covenant, but it is not a better covenant such as the new covenant. The old covenant was good because in it, there was a deposit of wisdom, of truth, of holiness from God. It was good and beneficial because it did teach the nature and the consequences of sin. It was good because it was able to represent, by way of shadows and types, various aspects of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it was good because it did establish a worship of God that was fitting for those people during that time. In all of these ways, it was a good covenant, but it is not as good as the new covenant because the new covenant is better. That's why he says Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. Third, the old covenant had a surety or it had a guarantee. There was one who stood before God on behalf of the people. And in the old covenant, this was fulfilled, though not perfectly and not in a way that could actually reconcile men to God. It was the high priest who was the one who was administering the old covenant. He was the guarantee of the covenant who offered gifts and sacrifices for sins. Hebrews 9, 16 to 22. Hebrews 9, 16 to 22. As for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. 
for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. And according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Here, this covenant was ratified through the shedding of blood, because the covenant cannot be ratified without death, right, without the shedding of blood. But here, God did not shed the blood of Moses, and he did not shed the blood of Aaron. He chose to shed the blood of animals that was performed by Aaron as his way of ratifying and confirming this covenant. And this is the chief failure or the chief weakness and the uselessness of the old covenant. The guarantee or the surety of that covenant, the mediator, the administer of that covenant was a mere man who was himself a sinner and obnoxious to death and who offered to God the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of animals. He could, through his ministry, neither deliver himself nor the people from sin and from death. And this is why there is the reason for the new covenant. The chief reason the new covenant is a better covenant is because it has a better guarantee, a better surety, a better mediator, a better high priest who offers better sacrifices for sins. And who is the guarantee or the surety of this new covenant? It is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. This is what he emphatically asserts. First, notice the person of whom we are speaking. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who is the guarantee of the new covenant. In Hebrews chapter 7, up to this point, he's dealing with the nature of the priesthood and all that it entails. He has compared and contrasted the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek with the Levitical priesthood. Now all that he has said concerning the priesthood, he makes application to a particular person, to a singular individual. The office of high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, the one that can actually atone for our sin and actually perfect the people, all of this must be fulfilled and can only be fulfilled by one person. And who is the only person who can do this? Only Jesus Christ. Jesus and Jesus alone is uniquely qualified to take up this role. He and he alone was made priest by an oath from the Father. And so it is not enough that one believes in the coming of the Messiah. It is not enough that one believes in the seed of Abraham. It is not enough that one believes that God will raise up a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We must believe that all of these promises of God concerning redemption that are found in the Old Testament, every single one of them have been fulfilled and they have been realized in one person. And that one person is Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all the promises made in the Old Testament. 
We must believe these things if we will have redemption and if we will have salvation. Everything has been fulfilled in one man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the son of Joseph, Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary, he is the promised Christ. He is the singular seed of Abraham. He is the priest who has arisen after the order of Melchizedek. He is the one that God the Father swore to, and there will be no other priest. It is only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And salvation can be found in no one else. It can only be found in his person, only in the person of Jesus Christ. Acts 3, 11 to 16. Acts 3, 11 to 16 This was the labor of the apostles amongst their own people, amongst the Jewish people. In the early days of the church, they were not seeking to convince them of the coming Messiah. They already all believed that. What they were seeking to convince them of was that Jesus of Nazareth, the one that they killed, he was indeed that Messiah and that they must put their faith in him. Acts 3, 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, and why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided To release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. It is faith in Jesus, faith in his name, right? You must call upon the name of the Lord. And who is the name of the Lord? It is the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ. This is what they are seeking to convince the people of. Jesus is the promised Christ. He is the one sent by God to redeem his people from sin and death. And it is not enough that one believes in the office of high priest described by Hebrews chapter 7. One must believe in the person who occupies this office. One must believe in Jesus of Nazareth. It is faith in his name. Anyone who would draw near to God must come through him. Right? It is not that Jesus is the high priest for Christians, and then Muhammad is the high priest for Muslims. We come through Jesus, they come uh, through Muhammad, the Jews come through Moses, as if there are these various ways by which men can draw near to God. There is only one way that any man can draw near to God, and it is only through the mediation, only through the priesthood of Jesus Christ that any man on this earth can draw near to God. So long as men seek to know God and to draw near to Him through another source, through another person other than Jesus Christ, then all of their efforts, all of their seeking of God is in vain. They're actually fleeing from Him. They're running from Him. 
The only way that we can come to God is through Jesus Christ. He and he alone is the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He and he alone is the seed of Abraham. He and he alone is the guarantee of the new covenant. And if we want the blessings of the new covenant, if we want all of the riches of the mercy of God poured out upon us, we can only gain it through one source, through one person, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Only through Him. Notice here as well in verse 22. He has made the guarantee of a better covenant. He has made this. He was made this by God the Father. When God swore, when God made this oath, when God determined His decree concerning Him. The Father gave this honor to him. We read that earlier from Hebrews 5, 4, and 5. Even Jesus did not take this honor for himself, but received it when he was called by God. He also was made this by his own voluntary, willing submission. Jesus was not unwilling, and the Father forced him, contrary to his will, to become the mediator, to become the guarantee of the new covenant. The Father was willing for the Son to be the guarantee of the new covenant, and the Son was willing voluntarily to come and to take this role up on behalf of the church. The Father and the Son and the Spirit, all of them were in complete harmony and unity that the Son would take on human flesh and that He would become the surety of a better covenant on behalf of the church for our sake, for our redemption. It says in Galatians 2.20 concerning the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. He gave himself up. No one took his life from him, but he willingly laid it down for us. It says in 1 John 3.16, he laid down his life for us. And in Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Notice next, he is called the guarantee of a better covenant. Here, the guarantee. This is an extremely important concept for us to understand because it explains to us why it is that we have redemption and why it is that we've come to terms of peace with God. Jesus is the one who is the guarantee for us, for our sake, who stands for us. He represents us to the Father, and He is the one who fulfills the terms of the covenant on our behalf, procuring for us all of the blessings of the new covenant. We have need of a guarantee or of a surety. There is the need for one to rise up as our representative, as a substitute for us. This term guarantee, as it's translated in my Bible and probably most of your translations, older translations would use the term surety. And it has this concept or this notion. It is a legal term referring to someone who comes and represents another in order to pay their debt, to pay what it is that they are obliged to pay, right? They come and fulfill whatever obligations a contract requires of one person who cannot in and of himself fulfill the terms of that contract, right? In a financial world, a bank might require a guarantor or a surety, a co-signer for someone to receive a loan. If the person does not have sufficient credit and they don't have enough collateral, the loan is a contract between the financial institution and the borrower. 
and the bank agrees to give to you a certain amount of money, and the one who borrows the money agrees to repay that amount of money along with whatever interest and fees the bank charges. A guarantor or a surety is provided to give assurance to the bank that if the borrower cannot fulfill the terms of the contract, if he cannot pay back what he has borrowed, his debt, then the guarantor would come, take his place, and pay his debt, that he would rise up, and then the obligations would be upon him, and he would fulfill the terms of the contract. This is the concept that we are dealing with here when Jesus is called the guarantee of a better covenant. In the covenant of works that God made between Adam, between God and Adam in the Garden of Eden, there was no surety, there was no mediator, there was no guarantee of that covenant. But God and Adam were in covenant together directly, immediately, without a mediator between the two of them. The terms of the covenant were that God, the superior, promised to bless, to be in communion, to be into fellowship with Adam, and promised to grant to him life on the condition that Adam was obedient to God, that Adam was faithful to God, that Adam had fidelity to his creator. And this was summarized for him in the forbidding of partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So long as Adam adhered to the terms of the covenant, then he had access to God, he had communion with God, and he would have had access to the tree of life. But if he failed to meet his covenant obligations, then God promised to him, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He would not be granted access to the tree of life. He would not be able to draw near to God, and he would be expelled and thrown out of the Garden of Eden, and the curse of death would come upon him for violating the terms of the covenant. All that Adam needed to be faithful was supplied by God at his creation. Adam did not have a sin nature. He was created righteously. He was created perfectly by God. He possessed original righteousness, However, he stood on his own strength. The blessings of life would be conferred upon him based upon his own obedience, based upon his faithfulness to the covenant. And what did Adam do? He failed. He failed miserably, right? He did not adhere to the covenant. God did not fail. God upheld his part. God was faithful to him, but Adam is the one who failed. God was faithful and Adam was unfaithful. And so that covenant was disannulled. The blessings of that covenant were not conferred upon Adam, but instead he received the curses of that covenant and death entered into the world through his sin. Under the old covenant that was made with Israel at Mount Sinai, the same thing is seen. God enters into a covenant with Israel at Sinai. God promises to be their God, and that they would be his people. God promises to bless them on the condition of their faithfulness to him. And though Israel did have a mediator in a sense, both Moses as the extraordinary receiver and communicator of the covenant, and then perpetually the high priest from the family of Aaron was the regular perpetual mediator throughout the years. Yet what do we see with Israel? Did they adhere and did they follow and were they faithful to the terms of the covenant? No, they failed miserably. How quickly did they fail? 
No sooner did they agree to it that they failed. Moses came down, told them what God required. They said, all that the Lord says that we will do. Then Moses went back up onto the mountain to receive the rest of the covenant. And while Moses was there, what did the people do? They created the golden calf and they played the harlot there. And who assisted them in the forging of that golden calf? Aaron, their high priest. Their high priest was the one who assisted them in the forging and the making of these things. So that when Moses comes down from the mountain in Exodus 32, 19, he breaks the tablets. He, the, the covenant was engraved on tablets of stone, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. And Moses threw those tablets down at the foot of the mountain, symbolizing and showing that this covenant that they had agreed to, this covenant had been broken, that they did not adhere, they did not follow that covenant. It was violated. They failed to adhere to its terms. And this is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the old covenant is referred to as a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation. That covenant could not confer life or righteousness to the people because the people could not adhere to the terms of the covenant. So instead of receiving the blessings from the law, they received the curses from the law, the curse of death, because everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them will be under the curse of God. In the case with Israel, just as in the case with Adam, was God faithful or unfaithful? God is always faithful. God always upholds his end of the covenant. The failure always comes on the side of man. And as long as man is standing as one of the parties in this covenant with God, is that covenant going to be successful? Or will that covenant always fail to yield blessing, the blessing of life upon the people? It's always going to fail. Because so long as one of the parties is sinful man, that part is always going to fail in their covenant obligations. They will never fulfill the terms of the covenant and they will never receive the blessing of life, but only death and condemnation. Both Adam and Israel, in them there is a fundamental problem. And the fundamental problem is mankind. We are the problem, right? We've always been the problem. God could enter into a million covenants with men. He could renew the covenant at Sinai every day. But so long as one of the parties in that covenant is weak, frail, sinful men, then that covenant will always fail to produce the blessings of life and righteousness. And it will only produce death and condemnation because no sinful man could ever keep its obligations. Man could never fulfill the terms of the covenant. Adam could not keep the terms of the covenant in the Garden of Eden when he was in a perfect state with original righteousness, when he was in a bountiful garden without all of the issues and difficulties that we face in this life. And if Adam, standing by himself as a mere creature, could not keep the terms of the covenant, how are any of us ever going to obtain life and righteousness through our own obedience, through our own fidelity to God? It is never going to happen. Right, A covenant always involves two parties. And so long as one of those parties is man, then it's always going to fail. God will always be faithful and man will always be faithless. Man is unfaithful. 
So what do we need in order to establish this covenant between God and man? This is what Jesus is. He is the guarantee. He is the surety. He is the one who stands in our place, who comes and fulfills the terms of the covenant on our behalf. The guarantor must be a man, for only a man can serve as a surety or as a mediator between God and man. Only a man can come and represent men. But if he is only a man, if he is merely a man, then it's just the same scenario repeated over and over and over again. The same thing with Adam, the same thing with Israel. It will always fail. Israel had a representative under the law. Moses was the extraordinary mediator of that covenant, and then the high priest was the regular mediator of that covenant through the years. Yet neither Moses nor Aaron nor any of Aaron's sons could ever serve as a guarantee or a surety between God and man. Moses could not stand in the place of Israel and fulfill their covenant obligations because Moses, as an individual person, couldn't keep it for himself. He already had failed for himself. So Moses is himself in need of a mediator. He is in need of a surety and a guarantee. So how could he or Aaron or any of their sons ever stand as a mediator between God and man when they themselves all are in need of a mediator themselves? Moses, Aaron, all of Aaron's sons, all of them were themselves sinners. All of them were liable to death. All of them needed a surety. None of them were able to keep the terms and obligations of the covenant. Moses, the chief and greatest of the prophets, could not do this for himself, nor he could he do it for the entire nation. We need one who is a man, but he must be more than a man. He must be greater than a man. He must, at the same time, be eternal God. He must be one who does not originate from Adam's corrupted stock. He cannot come from this fallen earth. We need a surety who is both the son of God and the son of man, and he must come down to us out of heaven itself. And this is why in 1 Corinthians 15, 47, it says the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man, where is he from? He is from heaven. He came down to us out of heaven. We have a debt to God. The original debt of righteousness that Adam owed to God, this debt is still upon us, and we cannot pay that debt. Now, in addition to that debt, we have the debt of sin, which requires our eternal death. And can we pay the debt of our own sin? So we are doubly dead, doubly in debt to God. The debt of righteousness we cannot keep, we cannot pay. The debt of sin we cannot pay. This is why John Owen said, If you lent a man a thousand pounds upon his own security, when he owed nothing else, nor was indebted to any other, and he has not only failed in his payment, but contracted other debts innumerable, will you now lend him ten thousand pounds on the same security, expecting to receive it again? Of course not. You can't pay your original debt. Why would I give you more money? Why would I give you an even greater debt? You can't even pay the original debt that you owe to God. This is where we are at as sinful men. 
And until these debts are paid, and until the terms of the covenant are fulfilled, then we ever remain cut off from the blessings of life, and we are under the curse of death. Jesus is the guarantor who comes, who stands in our place, who serves as our representative, who pays all of the debts that we owe to God. He is our surety who secures for us the blessings and favor of God so that all of the treasuries of God's grace and mercy are up, opened up to poor sinners. In the natural state, God deals directly with sinners. But in the redemptive state, when we are united to Christ by faith, our life is hidden in Christ with God. God is no longer dealing directly with us. Who is he dealing directly with on our behalf? He's dealing with Jesus Christ. He is our guarantee. He is our surety. He is our mediator who is standing in our place. And now God the Father is covenanting immediately with Jesus Christ, not with us. God the Father now is the one party of the covenant, and Jesus Christ is now the other party of the covenant, serving as our mediator. And this removes the previous problem. The reason all the other covenants failed, the reason the covenant with Adam failed, the reason the covenant with Israel failed, was not because God was unfaithful, but it was because of man's sin. It was man's disobedience. It was our faithlessness to God. God upheld his part of the covenant, but man failed to uphold his obligations to God. It failed because of weak, frail, sinful man. But now, weak, frail, sinful men, they've been removed from the equation. Now a substitute has arisen who has taken our place. Now instead of the terms of the covenant being upon us, the terms and the obligations of the covenant are upon the surety of the covenant who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And will he fail to meet the obligations to God? Will he fail to be faithful to the terms that God has established? No. He perfectly performs what God requires. His perfect, sinless life fulfills the debt of righteousness that we owe to God. His sacrificial death on the cross fulfills the debt of justice we owe to God because of our sins. And now all of the obligations that we require, that God requires of us, all of them have been fulfilled for us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that covenant between God and man, the relationship between God and man, can be reestablished. It can be secure. It can be stable. It is fixed and immovable because all of our obligations are being fulfilled by our surety. He is the one standing in our place. He is the one representing us. He is the guarantee of the covenant on our behalf. God the Father will never fail to uphold his part of the covenant. Jesus Christ will never fail to uphold his part of the covenant. So how can this covenant ever fail to produce life and blessing for the people of God? It is impossible. The only way it would fail to do so is if either God the Father was unfaithful or if Jesus Christ was unfaithful. And is that possible? It's never going to be possible, right? It is impossible then for the covenant to fail because God always fulfills his promises. One of his chief attributes, one of the traits that we find of God in the Bible, he is faithful. He does not lie and he does not change his mind. 
And then what is true of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? What does it say in Hebrews 13? Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, it is impossible for the church to fail. It is impossible that the church will not receive eternal life. It is impossible that the church will not have the love, the favor, and the grace of God. Because our blessings are not based upon our performance. Our blessings are based upon his performance. It is based upon Jesus Christ, upon his person and his work for us. Therefore, we are safe, we are secure, we are assured that we will indeed receive the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our soul, because it is not dependent in one ounce upon anything that we do. It is dependent solely upon what Christ has done for us. The tree of life is opened up for us because the surety has paid all of our debts in full. He has purchased all of the blessings of God for us, and he has paid for it with his own blood. And now God relates to us through his son. So when he sees us, who does he see in us? He sees Jesus Christ. And will he ever fail to love his son? Of course not. Will he ever fail to give to his son all that he desires? Of course not. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, everything is opened up to us. All of the blessings of God are given to us, and all of the curses from our sin has been taken away. And now we have this standing before God. This is how we are able to draw near to him, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then let us give to him all of our praise and all of our glory and put all of our trust and hope solely in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, these truths, Lord, they are too wonderful, Lord, for our, for our minds to even begin to comprehend and to grasp. Lord, what is the, the breadth and the height and the depth of the love that you have for us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Lord, it is amazing when we consider what you have done. Lord, all that was necessary and all that was required Lord, in order to bring us back to you, Lord, there was a debt of righteousness that our original father, Adam, Lord, that you placed upon him. And Lord, he failed to meet this requirement. And so instead of securing life for himself and his posterity, Lord, instead he brought sin and he brought death into the world. And Lord, we confess that we are guilty because of that sin, that sin of Adam, that we were there with him in the garden, that he was our representative, and that when he sinned, Lord, we sinned against him as well, and that we rightly, from that point on, Lord, come under the guilt and the judgment and the condemnation of death. Lord, not only do we have this original debt of righteousness, but Lord, we also see that we have innumerable debts of sin. That, Lord, our sins are so vast that they reach to the very heavens. Lord, we cannot even begin to count or to number the ways that we have sinned against you. Lord, as we saw this morning, you require that we love you with all of our heart, soul, might, and strength. What man could ever say that 
He has ever done this perfectly. Lord, for even one day of his life. Lord, for even one hour or even one minute. Lord, are we able to yield such perfect obedience to you? And so, Father, we see that we have contracted, Lord, defilements and impurities, Lord, debts, because of the many sins that we have committed against you. And Lord, we have no way in which we can pay these debts. We are completely bankrupt. Lord, we are paupers. Lord, we are destitute. Lord, we have nothing. And yet, Lord, that you would make a way to redeem such rebels. Lord, such worthless, pitiful creatures. Lord, is beyond what we could ever hope or imagine. Lord, what more could Adam have ever thought when you came into the garden that day, the day of his sin, that he would have only received from you your curses and your condemnation. And yet there, Lord, you gave to him, Lord, not only a manifestation of his sin and how great it was, but you also gave to him hope. Lord, a hope of redemption that you would provide a seed of the woman who would come and would undo everything that was brought about through the temptation of Satan and through our own transgressions. And Lord, we confess that Jesus Christ, Lord, the Jesus that we read about in the Gospels, Lord, that he is indeed the promised Christ. He is the seed of the woman. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Lord, we see that he and he alone is the mediator between God and man. And he is the only one who can purify us of all unrighteousness and who can make us fit to be in your presence. And so, Lord, we trust in him completely. Lord, we pray that you would, Lord, confirm this in us more and more. Lord, that we would have even greater confidence in the work of Christ. Lord, we are so bent toward our own works. Lord, to even as Christians, Lord, though we, we certainly want to obey you and we want to live a life pleasing to you, and Lord, we know that it grieves your spirit and it brings your fatherly displeasure when we sin against you. But Lord, may we always remember that our standing before you is always and only based upon the guarantee of the covenant, only on Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, we are accepted in your sight and we have love and your favor and your grace because of what he has done on our behalf. So, Father, we thank you for him and we thank you for providing this great redemption. And, Lord, may we live in light of this and, Lord, we pray that you help us to come to new depths of understanding of all that Christ has done for us. Lord, that we might love him more and more and that we would want to live our life for his glory and for his honor. Lord, continue to bring about this work of redemption in us. And Lord, we pray that you would receive our prayers, even today, through our great high priest, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen.